If you ask any fan of Amazing Spider-Man who their favorite Spider-Man writer is, there's likely a chance that they'll name Roger Stern somewhere near the top. From his co-creation of The Hobgoblin, the tear-jerking story The Kid Who Collected Spider-Man, to his two-part Nothing Can Stop the Juggernaut, his work is hard not to notice. But what many fans won't recollect is that Roger Stern didn't make his Spidey debut in the pages of Amazing Spider-Man, but actually wrote 16 issues of the B-title, Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man. You see, Dan, all of the DNA of those classic stories from Amazing Spider-Man can be found in his early spectacular work. These are things like Stern's characterization of Peter Parker. It, it just makes it clear that he gets the character and his supporting cast, who also played a bigger role, probably their biggest role since the early days of the book. The stories were just plain funny and showed a real attention to continuity detail, including wrapping up plot threads no one had thought about in years. That's not to mention the colorful cast of villains who either debuted here or were stolen from another hero by Stern to become permanent Spidey rogues. This was Spider-Man amped up to 11, and it was the spectacular Roger Stern. Too many who know the angles, uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle I'll be in 1962, last Wednesday's afternoon They'll bend your ears with reckless self-abandon The Amazing Spider-Talk The Amazing Spider-Talk Come swing the air, sit back and prepare For the Amazing Spider-Talk Hello, I'm Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, which definitely count. <sighs> and I'm Mischievous Mark Chinacchio, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, but the annuals, Dan, they don't count. But the indexes do. <laughs> That's right, Dan. <laughs> I'm throwing down the gauntlet. Go check my Instagram feed if you don't believe me. The Amazing Spider-Man indexes count, because you don't own them, Dan, right? I do not own them. I just have that one with the great wraparound cover by Roger, or not Roger Stern, from Ron Friends. That's a great one. Now now I got to get these, Mark. We are just going to chase each other to the ends of the earth. They're just so hard to find, too, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but I do have, speaking of ends of the earth, I have that ends of the earth one shot. So there we go. We're, we're playing catch up here. Yeah. Well, hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us for the eighth and final episode of season four of The Amazing Spider Talk, the show where two fans and collectors uncover the strange, fun, and fascinating history of the Spider-Man comic universe. If you want to swing along with us on our journey through Spidey's past, present, and future, subscribe to Amazing Spider Talk on your favorite podcast app. Every other week, we put up a mainline episode of our flagship show, and sprinkled in between, we review new comics as well as interview some of the greatest Spider-Man creators of yesterday and today. This is the perfect time to start listening. Even though it's the end of the season. It's still perfect. <laughs> you whole, yeah, you got a whole four seasons to listen to if you haven't already. Uh, so that's a lot of fun. So yeah, um, in this season of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk, we've been revisiting Spider-Man's adventures in the early 80s, where denim jackets were hip, the villains were forgettable, and Spider-Man found some amazing new friends. With the end of Denny O'Neill's run on Amazing came a pair of new creators on the Spider-Man books that would change the title forever. But readers of Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man, were already getting a sneak preview of Spider-Man's vaunted future. That future was in the hands of writer Roger Stern, who, as we said in the intro, wrote and plotted 16 issues of Spectacular Spider-Man that quickly earned him the top spot on the Spidey books. But what was it about Roger Stern's writing that would launch him into Spider-Fan stardom? That's what Dan and I will be talking about today as we introduce Roger Stern in the pages of Spectacular. That's right, Mark. And if you're watching live, you can see an incredible depiction of his incredible Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man from issues 50 and 51. Their covers as interpreted by artist Nick Cagnetti. 
now available to all of our Patreon supporters. That artwork is really cool. Deb Whitman, some aliens from Amazing Spider-Man number two. It doesn't get much better than that. <laughs> um, and that's all because we're streaming our show live. So every other Sunday night at 8.30 p.m. Eastern time, tune in on YouTube as we record Amazing Spider-Talk live. Just go to Amazing Spider-Talk on YouTube, hit subscribe, smash that subscribe button, and be sure to turn on notifications by clicking on that bell to be reminded when we go live. In today's episode, we are going to start out with a brief discussion of what happened in the pages of Spectacular Spider-Man before Roger Stern took over. And then we'll discuss just who exactly this Roger Stern guy is before choosing some of our favorite of his stories and concluding with a discussion of all of the ideas and tropes and themes and whatnot that originated in Spectacular but would go on to kind of become the, the meat and potatoes of his amazing run. If you want to read along, Roger Stern's run on Spectacular Spider-Man is mostly available on Marvel Unlimited and covers Spectaculars number 43, 45 to 52, 54 to 61, and Spectacular Annual number three. So first up, Mark, we wanted to talk about kind of a catch up of what's been going on in Spectacular Spider-Man. You know, uh, what's the deal? (laughs) Yeah, it would be a little unfair to skip over like so many great Bill Mantlo stories to get straight to Stern. I mean, I think there's, you know, some of them we've covered before. I think our forgettable guys villains episode really covered a lot of these stories. So we're not going to go into too great detail, but we wanted to catalog like what actually was happening in the time between our last show about Spectacular Spider-Man and this show about Spectacular Spider-Man. So like we talked about it a little bit last season. The big thing I think to mention here is that like Bill Mantlo's carry on saga. This was a really like long running big event in the pages of Spectacular Spider-Man. Yeah. And I mean, I think it was like extra kind of significant because of the fact that we had, you know, one of the episodes is one of the episodes. One of the issues is Blind Leading the Blind, which was Frank Miller on Spectacular Spider-Man number 27, which is also significant because it's the first time Frank Miller, who would go on to become one of the greatest comic book writers and artists of all time on Daredevil. This was his debut doing Daredevil. I mean, it was in a Spider-Man book, but I mean, like one of those cool little historical turnarounds, I guess you would call it. And and so that was kind of from a historic, not just a Spider-Man history, but like a comic book history standpoint, this was like one of those kind of watershed moments that appeared in the old B book of Spider-Man, right? It's kind of funny because, you know, you got like an artist like John Romita Sr. who would go on to be like the most famous, probably Spider-Man artist. I mean, Dicko obviously, but Romita's really popularized the visuals of the character. And he started on a daredevil book. Interesting that these, you know, kind of famous creators who would do the alternate characters. And this issue is kind of funny because you can really tell that Frank Miller prefers drawing daredevil. There are images where they're like in broad daylight and daredevil is like, Bast in shadow and Spider-Man is like completely flatly lit and you're like he really cared about Daredevil way more than he cared about Spider-Man and in, in many ways I think it's kind of an ugly issue but you can tell this guy was really passionate about the darkness of Daredevil. Yeah, there was clearly something there to the blindness and, like you said, the street level, the grittiness. And, you know, we can do a whole episode about that if we ever wanted to. We should. It'd be fun, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, the Carry On Saga, we talked about it a lot in the Forgettable Guys episode. But, you know, memorable for continuing the legacy of the Clone Saga forward and, and, and becoming a big, you know, part of the 90s stuff that would go on and, um, and it's kind of a fun, if like particularly bizarre story in its own right. Right. And then in terms of other historically significant issues from this run, we have the introduction of the iguana, right? I mean, and the iguana and the lizard, the creation of the spider lizard. I mean, this is this is like incredible stuff, right, Dan? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a fine story. I think like... <laughs> The, the bigger thing is this like this device, the Enervator that Kurt Connors creates that becomes kind of a backbone of a number of stories. Even in Stern's run on this title, he would bring back this Enervator device that would like unleash animalistic things in people. It became kind of this long running plot device throughout the Mantlo and a little bit of the Stern run. And 
if you like new Spider-Man designs, you can't go wrong with the spider lizard. It was bound to happen at some point. So, yeah, there it is. So there you go. And then, of course, there was, you know, significant for our podcast purposes, the introduction of none other than Swarm, the reanimated Nazi skeleton made entirely out of bees. I don't think Swarm's appearing tonight, Dan. I I think I'm going to spare everyone that, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah, keep him locked in your beehive shelter. I guess Swarm is also notable because he got a couple of issues which, you know, any villain that lasts more than an issue or two, I guess it's considered an arc these days. <laughs> he was deemed worthy enough to have his own arc as he took over ESU. And then kind of of note also, you know, maybe not a big note because it's another kind of forgotten villain is Bill Mantlo told, a, I think, a really fun story revisiting Mindworm. Um, it doesn't appear to be a Mindworm story at first, but it kind of reinvents the character. It's just kind of down on his luck guy that would then kind of get picked up by Paul Jenkins later down the road. I mean, notable only in that it's a a kind of a classic character that's revisited here. You know, someone that was a big, uh, not a big character, but a a prominent character and amazing, at least for an issue or two before kind of getting another story here. I don't know if it's that significant, but I thought it worth bringing up. So, I mean, Dan, we're, we're, we're looking at here Swarm and Mindworm and Iguana and the Spider Lizard. How could anyone possibly follow an act like that, right? I mean, you know, it would have to be one of the greatest creators of all time to follow an act like that. And, and that's what we got on Spectacular Spider-Man with the introduction of Roger Stern, right? Yeah, of good old young Roger Stern. Um, we got this image of him up here. Doesn't look that different today if you bump into Roger Stern at a convention. He's great a little bit. He has kept pretty consistent. I'm so excited to talk about Roger Stern. Now, sneak preview here, Mark. Next season is going to be all about Roger Stern. Yeah, so- well, certainly his his work on Amazing for sure. I mean, we'll we'll talk about a few other things in that season, but like, yeah, we're, we're so we're not going to go too much of a deep dive here into his biography, but like, we can give you certainly the surface introduction here in terms of how he got to Spectacular, don't you think? Yeah, for sure. So, Mark, you're our historian, our <laughs> resident historian. Tell us a little bit more about this Roger Stern guy. Yeah, and we touched on this a little bit with our interview with Danny Figueroff a few episodes ago. So Stern was considered part of what is called the third wave of creators who came uh, to Marvel in like the late 70s. So like some of the big names from that era were like Frank Miller, John Byrne, and uh, Mark Grunewald, uh, who like were all kind of hired as writers, artists, editors. They kind of came alongside with Jim Shooter before he became editor-in-chief of Marvel. Before coming to Marvel, Stern kind of got on the you know Marvel's radar by contributing to their fanzine, uh, FOOM, which stands for Friends of Old Marvel. And then from there, Jim Shooter, who would become Marvel's editor-in-chief, invited Stern on to, to serve as an editor in the late 70s. And Stern was was... You know, he did it, was kind of into the gig, but really wanted to write. So to to keep Stern engaged, Shooter basically gave him an exclusive contract to write for Marvel. His first gig was uh, Spectacular Spider-Man. Yeah, issue 43, kicking it off with, I think, the thing he's most famous for. Right. Well, it would be Roderick Kingsley, the introduction of Roderick Kingsley, who would, of course, <laughs> would go on to... Many, many years after he was introduced, be revealed as the Hobgoblin. But that's a story for another season for sure. Um, <laughs> but um, it's, it's, it's kind of funny because if you go back and read some of the Stern interviews where he talks about his career, you know, he was obviously thrilled to be a writer. He was apparently terrified about the prospects of uh, writing Spider-Man. It was kind of like, you know, Spider-Man is Marvel's flagship character. He wasn't ready to take on such a character. And then I guess Shooter kind of assuaged him by being like, well, it's spectacular Spider-Man. And Stern was like, oh, okay." And and this is this is a a quote. That's not that wasn't, quote unquote, really Spider-Man. So, like, I mean, it's it's the acknowledgement that spectacular as the B book was kind of like. 
more under-recognized stories. Obviously, like you weren't using the main villains as much. You weren't uh, introducing major characters, Roger Kingsley aside, uh, <laughs> into you know, uh, in the main in the in the B books. I mean, so it was it was obviously a perfect place for a young writer to kind of get his feet wet writing Spider-Man uh, and getting kind of used to his sense of humor and his personality and the action and how to kind of construct sequential art using Spider-Man's as abilities and, and characteristics. Do you think that he like took to it straight away? I mean, like you're reading issue 43 and like, I guess, and then the follow up, like, you know, with like 48, is that something you know, you read those issues, does it stand out to you? Like Roger Stern really gets this character or do you feel like he grew into that? I I think it's a little of both. I think that there are certainly signs right from Jump Street that he gets it or at least is making an effort to get it. And maybe like, maybe he's a little too uh, expository about certain things with uh, Spider-Man and Peter initially, like how he kind of has Peter narrating his own powers and abilities. I actually kind of like in a weird way. Like I like when the writer kind of puts that voice out there of like, you know, reminding people like I have the proportionate strength and speed of a spider or my spider sense alerts me to these, these pratfalls in front of me. You know what I mean? Like those kind of things. Like I feel like Stern was kind of leaning heavily on those little inserts early on. And as he kind of grew into it, got a little more confident and didn't have to put it so on the nose. He clearly had an idea of what he wanted to write about and how he wanted specifically to write Peter. And, and actually, uh, Stern had a mantra that that he basically picked up while writing Spectacular, which was, you know, in terms of what his focus on, on Peter, the character, was, uh, quote unquote, no matter how bad my day was, Peter's was always worse. And that's, I mean, that's <laughs> Spider-Man in a nutshell. I mean, that's the thing. He's, <laughs> he is the everyman, everyman hero who has the problems paying rent and problems keeping dates and poor Deb Whitman in this arc, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. I mean, you know, how many dates were broken up with here? I mean, it's, 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 you know, all of these like, like, aw shucks, Peter down on his luck problems are just coming out in full force on this, but in a very kind of snarky, funny, true to the character, true to that Dicko, true to that Romita uh, way that we really hadn't seen, certainly on the uh, Amazing book in, in quite some time. So kind of seeing this character show up in Spectacular was, was, is kind of a breath of fresh air uh, as we're reading these issues, especially in the context of this season. Yeah, I agree with you about your assessment about Stern's abilities in terms of writing Spider-Man. I think it took a little bit, I think, you know, especially in how it handled the villains. I mean, I I'm not going to knock Belladonna. I think she's kind of fun. But I think eventually he kind of got a, a better handle on how to kind of like handle the kind of juggling act that is Spider-Man, his supporting cast, villains, and that kind of structure. But to me, the one thing that's very clear from the get-go is... Stern's grasp of Spider-Man's humor. The book just gets, you know, astronomically funnier with Stern writing the book. And I, I still think he's one of the funniest people to write the character in his very particular unique sense of humor. Like to me, Roger Stern's Spider-Man humor is like tied with like Stan Lee in terms of like, this feels like Peter Parker's, you know, jokiness. Uh, that's what I identify it as. I mean, the phrase that Stern uses to describe Peter's sense of humor is Weisenheimer, which, like, to me, is kind of like an old school term. But, like, that's to me, that's what it is. Because I think, like, that's and I think that's where maybe more modern creators kind of miss the mark a little bit because it's it's kind of like that that vaudevillian kind of sense of humor and sensibility that obviously someone of Stan Lee and then, you know, Roger Stern's generation, I think would have more of a grasp on than maybe some of today's writers who I think kind of play more to like the cheap seats with some of the jokes, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And I also think it's important to note here, you know, there, there are a few times in kind of Spider-Man history where like amazing wasn't like the best Spider-Man book out on the market. I mean, I don't want to like pit Danny O'Neill against Roger Stern, but like knowing that these books were coming out simultaneously in, in my mind, it, 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 it's not that surprising that Roger Stern would kind of quickly be asked to step up to take on amazing. There's only like a few other times where I can really think of that where like maybe in the nineties around issue 200, 
you know, spectacular was probably better than amazing. And like early two thousands when ultimate was, I think definitely better than amazing, at least for a little while there are, are those kind of the major ones that stand out to you. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. I was going to say like probably JMD versus like the David Michelinie run on ASM. I mean, those always kind of stand out to me as like when the B book might've outshone it a little bit. In, in all those instances, it was kind of like being being behind the screen a bit of writing spectacular allowed the creators to maybe explore ideas and themes and characteristics that in the main book just weren't, it just wasn't out, you know, like it was all about just churning out sales and, and making sure things were bigger and glitzier. Although I would say in this instance, ASM wasn't really glitzier either. It was just kind of this weird in between. But like, but I, I, in general, I think when in those instances where the B book is kind of surpasses the the A book, that's that's the what's going on in the background. But whatever. Re- regardless, these are these are. I was about to say great stories. Maybe that's a bit of an overstatement. But like this is this is this feels very familiar. I enjoy like this is one of those instances where kind of binging for this episode. It, it's it's an enjoyable binge, you know. <laughs> and some of the books are are truly weird. But um, to kind of round out his biography here, you know, after eighteen months in the book, he would officially graduate to Amazing Spider-Man with issue two hundred and twenty-four. This kind of iconic vulture issue. I, I think you've written about this issue a number of times, Mark, and we'll talk about it next season for sure. Uh, weird to start a, a, a run on Amazing with Vulture. But I think uh, Stern pulls it off and we'll talk a little bit more about the vulture in a moment. I think everybody's going to have a little bit of uh, controversy about our saying one book was better than the other at certain times. Everybody has their own opinion. But if you want to hash it out, why don't you do so in our Slack? That's a beautiful transition, Dan. Uh, hundreds, of <laughs> hundreds of listeners like you hang out in our community of Spider-Man fans on Slack. The Amazing Spider Slack community is absolutely free to join, and you can jump into active conversations with awesome people about collecting, conventions, movies, new comics, old comics, and more. Yeah, I'm there all the time. This week, we had this kind of like brewing discussion about the inclusion of Spider-Man in that new Avengers game that was being previewed this past weekend. I didn't get to play it. I I meant to, but got busy prepping for this show. That's a whole side point. Some of us were really thrilled about it and others think it's a bit unfair and unhealthy for the gaming community. And uh, I'll admit as a PlayStation owner, I'm excited about it, but a bit curious to know what you guys think. So yeah, if you have thoughts about Avengers or whatever, anything Spider-Man related, come join this awesome Spider-Man community. Just follow the link in the description and be sure to say hi. And once you're there, be sure to let us know what you thought of this new episode and all of season four. Enough about me yammering about our awesome Slack. Let's get back to our content. And Mark, we're going to be talking about major stern spectacular stories what are some of the highlights what are some of our favorites why don't you kick us off here mark what are some of because i think this first topic is is centered right dead on you so tell us some of these some of these highlights here of this spectacular run well this is this is truly a before they were famous moment right no um i probably (laughs) you know and it's it's the very first story it's one of those weird instances. It's like like your favorite Rhino story, Dan, where uh, it's broken up by a couple of issues. It's a two part story. It's the saga involving it's superhero supervillain fashion wars, right? <laughs> and it's involving Belladonna. She's the the woman kind of in the back in the background of that image there, her with the with the Carmen San Diego hat, and then Roderick Kingsley, who is the the character there holding the gun after allegedly you know, apparently shooting Spider Man. Kingsley is a fashion designer, but he is a no good Nick who apparently steals designs from other people. He certainly comes across for this context of comics a little effeminate, which was kind of unique for a villain. We didn't see that a lot in. In superhero comics, Belladonna and and Kingsley are kind of sabotaging each other. What's significant about this, as we alluded to earlier, Kingsley is a character that Stern, when he eventually graduated to Amazing, would reuse and was supposed to be who Stern was going to reveal as the Hobgoblin, which was the big villain that Stern created. You know, in an episode that's going to be so much fun for us to do next season, uh, that got all botched up to, to hell 
Kingsley was ever truly revealed to be the the Hobgoblin until uh, almost 10 years after his Stern's run ended in amazing. So we're talking like in the 90s. So with that, with all that said, though, what so what was your take on Kingsley in these issues, though? Because it's a completely different interpretation of the character of Stern's own character who's when, compared to what Stern would do later on. Well, that's the thing. It, it's almost better to think of him as a different character for a number of reasons. I mean, I think the way the character is written is very different. And I think it has to be acknowledged the horri- horrible stereotype that is Roderick Kingsley in this issue. I mean, it, he's written like every bad, effeminate, gay stereotype. You know, I think Roger Stern would probably acknowledge this himself. And the character was kind of quickly, even in his second appearance, you could see it kind of moving a little bit. In issue 48, he starts to become a little more aggressive and stands up for himself. But he's like a shrinking violet in the first issue. And it's 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 hard to read, you know, in 2020, which, you know, fair. This wasn't written in 2020, but these things are still uh, appropriate to call out. There are some interesting things about the character here that like would eventually get reworked into the Hobgoblin down the road, the fashion designer element. You know, I think now in comics, Roderick Kingsley's kind of uh, place in the Marvel Universe is he is designing outfits and costumes and for villains and selling them to villains. So that kind of incorporates some of his history as of a fashion designer. But I, I think if you read this, it almost cuts against the portrayal of the Hobgoblin. Like, there's no way this guy in these issues could be the Hobgoblin. Yeah, and 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 when Stern has been asked about this, too, and he has been a bunch of times, I mean, he kind of plays coy about it. Like, well, you know, I never, you know, I, you know, basically, like, when he created Kingsley for Spectacular, he wasn't thinking Hobgoblin, but when he, you know, he claims when he created Hobgoblin years later, he was always thinking Kingsley. You know what I mean? Which I guess makes sense. You need to know who your villain is if you're going to do a secret... Uh, identity thing but certainly like there were no clues early and Kingsley's name was barely even mentioned in Amazing until I would say about five or six issues after Hobgoblin is introduced so which is kind of interesting too it's not like he was showing up and then all of a sudden the Hobgoblin appeared again you know but like other things from these two issues that are kind of fun and kind of also show some quirks of Stern I mean we had like the um we we brought back the cat burglar from the the Dicko Lee issue of Amazing Spider-Man number thirty because it's like, you know, Lord knows we needed a cat bur- burglar callback, right? <laughs> Just as much as we needed a Gog callback. Exactly. I I mean I would I would say in this in this instance this is even a bigger callback than Gog. And then also we we had a a second Prowler in here although we we did get to see the original Prowler Hobie Brown but it's, I mean like I said it's it's these kind of how Stern mined the the Ditko and Ramita issues that I think uh, would come back a lot over the course of this run, like in ways that you didn't expect. Because like, obviously, you really couldn't mine, you couldn't retcon stuff from ASM while writing Spectacular, especially in this day and age. Well, I'm going to cut you off here, Mark, because that's not entirely true. Because in Spectacular Spider-Man number 50, I think he takes this whole idea of his love of continuity and pulls them like I wouldn't say a major retcon, you know, but if, you know, people we talked back about this in our first season that, you know, when these comics start off, these writers don't really know what their character is yet. They haven't really figured him out. So who does Spider-Man fight? And in issue two, Spider-Man fights a bunch of aliens and the tinkerer who is revealed to be an alien kind of in, in the end of the issue. And I think, you know, Stern couldn't let that lie. You know, he had to fix this continuity thing. And so he does in issue 50. So who do these aliens end up being? It's kind of insane. They're henchmen of Mysterios, correct? I'm like, I'm like, I, I just read this issue like yesterday. And now I'm like trying to remember the whole the whole lineage because it is kind of very backwards, right? <laughs> yeah, but the way he retcons it is he has this whole reunion with these aliens occur when Peter is and Deb are going to meet Nathan Lubeski for the first time, Aunt May's fiance, our new fiance at this like fancy restaurant. And the waiters turn out to be aliens. So like their faces come off and they're aliens. But then they're wearing the alien is a mask too. So they're like wearing these double masks. <laughs> and that's the retcon to get out of the tinkerer being an alien. 
he was a alien wearing a mask, but under the alien mask, he was also another person. So that's their whole gig is they wear two layers of masks to freak people out. And I think those are really fun issues. No, these are very fun. And it's also worth noting that this issue kind of calls back, obviously not as far back, but like to the Marv Wolfman story that we talked about in our, our debut episode this season, which was Spectacular 200. Oh, what's the criminal's name? The one who owned Uncle Ben's and Aunt May's house. I, I'm forgetting. Yeah, well, right anyway, Mysteri- basically in Chris Mysterio, prior to Spectacular 200, fakes Aunt May's death as a way to... to get the buried treasure in Aunt May's house, which was eaten by silverfish. But Stern calls it all back here. Uh, this time, Mysterio is try- is actually intentionally trying to kidnap Peter Parker, not realizing that Peter is Spider-Man because he's going to get, you know, whereas he can't torture Aunt May without killing her, basically. He's going to put Peter through all of his his contraptions and holograms and, and illusions to get him to to tell where the treasure is, damn it, because we got to find out where this treasure is. <laughs> I guess he didn't get the memo that it was all destroyed. But what I also like about this issue is that, like I mentioned, Deb Whitman, I feel like Stern had the strongest grasp on how to write. Deb Whitman as a character. She, you know, was, you know, Peter's, you know, girlfriend ish at the time, but I feel like he gave her a little more agencies. I think she like beats up on Mysterio a little bit here and gets involved in the caper in ways that she really rarely ever did get involved in the kind of Spider-Man antics. She always kind of felt like separate from everything. And ultimately Stern would kind of pair her up with like Biff Rifkin you know, give her like some agency beyond just waiting around for Peter. Yeah, I feel like she's I feel like she's more sympathetic under Stern's pen, so to speak, whereas she kind of is pathetic. I, 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 I mean, unfortunately, with some other creators. And I think that that had a lot to do with it, too. I mean, like Peter is still basically an ass to her. Like that's that's unchanged. Like he's just so oblivious and cruel and not I don't think maliciously cruel, but cruel. I feel like the way Stern writes Deb here, like it's it's not it's not a punchline when when Peter does it. Like you actually are like, whoa, Peter! Like that's a real a hole thing to do, man. <laughs> like what are you doing? <laughs> like <laughs> I, I, I like you said, I think it gives her more agency. I think it makes her a more well rounded character. I think if this was the character that she was throughout her her run here, she, there would probably be fewer jokes about her for sure. And then on the other end of the spectrum in an actually happy relationship is Aunt May and Nathan Lubeski, who meets Peter and Deb, like I said, in Amazing or in Spectacular Spider-Man 50. That's kind of like the big event of the issue is this new fiance. I've always felt like this came out of nowhere, like they were looking to do something with Aunt May. But I never really bought this the way this relationship just kind of like ramps up. I mean, maybe there's an untold tale there of their courtship in the nursing home, but to rush so quickly to getting engaged, I guess they, they don't have a lot of time left, so they should just get, jump well, on it. Well, hey, but, uh, at, least, yeah. at least we didn't get a visual of them in bed together like we would do with, oh. with Jameson Sr. down the line, you know what I mean? So No, thank God, thank God. So Nathan is always kind of an interesting character, especially as he would eventually get fleshed out to be kind of like tied up in some seedy stuff. And I think Roger Stern even does kind of some, of some of the, you know, we'll get to this in a minute. Like he plays with the kind of Nathan character and his frailness or not frailness, but you know, his limited abilities in, in interesting ways, but he also gives him agency. Like I think Nathan also gets a few licks in here on Mysterio and his goons. Another big story here was spectacular number 52. This is where, uh, Stern brings back only to retire the White Tiger, uh, Hector Ayala. This is this was a pretty compelling issue in terms of Spider-Man kind of fighting to avenge the White Tigers. Well, it wasn't death, but like he was he was injured pretty badly, shot up by Mason Gideon, I believe. Right. Right. Am I saying that right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's correct. Um, yeah. You know, it's kind of like this this revenge story, but also like this is a guy who's like basically targeting all costume superheroes. And there's also this really great scene in there between Robbie and Jonah where Jonah, you know, kind of sees how upset Peter is by Hector's uh, injuries. And, 
you know, it's like, ah, you know, I've kind of seen this before. And, you know, even though I don't like these these costumed heroes and he kind of trails off and Robbie kind of narrates, completes the sentence of, you know, like he knows that Jonah is like, you know, no one deserves this. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it's 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 a very cruel situation to have someone shot up like that. You know, but like, again, that's kind of stern specialty is is adding these these layers of humanity and 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 interest and intrigue to these characters, the supporting cast, in, in addition to the main cast as well. And I never really knew the behind the scenes play at this, why this character was kind of shelved. I know that he wasn't the most popular but it was interesting because the few issues leading up to this, like there's a backup in all the uh, spectacular Spider-Man issues. So if you're buying them and you're like, why are these so thick? It's because there's like a Spider-Man story and then there's, you know, a, a white tiger story for like, I don't know, like eight pages or so in the back. And I guess that they kind of knew that they were going to retire the character. So they were kind of building him up a little bit before sending him off. Do you, do you know anything about like the rationale behind kind of getting rid of the character from this title? I really don't. Obviously, if there's anyone out there that has a, a better sense of it, you know, either chime in in the comments or, or write in or call in or whatever. But yeah, no, I don't I don't know much more of the backstory besides what we eventually got here. Um, another story I wanted to highlight was Spectacular 58 with The Ringer, who has kind of gone on to become like a minor Spider-Man villain. I think he also made, you know, several appearances in the Ultimate Spider-Man book and... I think it's become like a Miles regular to to fight. The Ringer doesn't originate here in Spectacular Spider-Man, but I think there's kind of like a, a, a template that's created by this issue, which is the kind of loser villain template. I think if you look at like modern day Shocker, he's kind of modeled after this issue of Spectacular Spider-Man and The Ringer. Basically, The Ringer doesn't want to fight Spider-Man, but is kind of blackmailed into doing so. He's not really fighting with his full heart, and he's also the ringer. And <laughs> Spider-Man rings the ringer, if, if, if you will, and kind of quickly takes him out. And it's kind of a fun issue because it's, it's a reluctant loser villain. And I think over the years, we would get a lot of Spider-Man fights, reluctant loser villains or villains who are trying to punch above their weight. This was the first I can really think of, maybe the Gibbon or something like that. But like this really sets out to go, this guy is a flat out loser. Let's see what he does against Spider-Man. Um, so I, I thought that that was interesting and a fun issue to boot. It's very proto superior foes for sure. And speaking of the Gibbon, uh, we kind of come close to the end of, of Stern's run here with bringing the Gibbon back. And also it's kind of, it's this odd uh, two-parter where there's kind of the, this, this mysterious mastermind behind the scenes uh, trying to, to, to build some stuff up. And then it gets revealed to be the Beetle. The Beetle is back. I think Beetle was created as a human torch villain initially in Strange Tales, but then like kind of went over to Spider-Man for a while during the Ditko run and and shows up again here. Also, the Beetle would go on to have some fun in Superior Foes too. So a lot of seeds planted for Superior Foes in this run here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these, these are issues 60 and 61 and they're fun issues. You know, it's kind of like uh, set out as the Beetle's Revenge and I guess like the the Gibbons like resurrection in a way, like he tries to kind of first he's kind of against Spider-Man, but then he realizes like, you know, I should redeem myself in some way. And so you get that kind of classic Gibbon formula that I think, unfortunately, it was brought to an end last year in the, the hunted storyline in a tragic way. But um, seemingly how that story would end. And I think this uh, these two issues are also famous for issue 60s Frank Miller cover which is really cool. I know that I always wanted to own that one whenever I saw it in a, in a long box. And I think I bought it with you, Mark, when we first met at a convention up in Connecticut. I think that was like one I was like, I'm going to buy it because I just love the Frank Miller cover. No bearing on, on the interior at all. It's a cool cover. You want to talk a little bit about some sternisms that would uh, come to be on this run? Yeah, sure. So what we're going to be doing is talking about like stories that appeared in Spectacular Spider-Man or like tropes that Stern would later reuse or evolve in his amazing run, and which we're obviously going to be talking about next season. Uh, plug, plug, plug. Stay tuned for season five. Uh, there's some exciting stories here that at least when I was rereading them, I was like, holy crap, like 
there are so many Sternisms in the Stern stuff. Yeah, go figure, right? I think the first of which, and, and we talked a little bit about this earlier on in this episode, which was kind of the focus on uh, Peter slash Spider-Man's uh, strengths and weaknesses. I mean, there was it was constantly like callbacks to basically like Spider-Man having the proportionate strength and speed of a spider or having or using his spider sense in, in unique ways or, you know, running out of web fluid, like things like that, you know, like the, the, the little things that you would think every writer would just lean on over and over and they don't. And, and Stern would. You know? <laughs> and, and, and there's a reason why we like these stories, because it's like, again, it's like kind of like that, that brush of of realism in a superhero fantasy that kind of makes spider-man a a unique hero for us and in addition to that like i also feel like um there was a lot of callbacks to spider-man's experience uh with previous villains like oh i know last time i fought vulture i had a head cold well this time i didn't and last time i saw these aliens they were with the tinkerer you know like like again it's 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 both a reference to continuity but also kind of like you know, this idea that this is all just one long form story being told year after year by a bunch of different writers and artists. Stern seemed to really have a grasp of that. And I feel like Stern brought back some of the Dicko-isms of like Spider-Man having like minor injuries that would set him back during something like you mentioned. I think in his spectacular run, Spider-Man gets an ulcer and that's kind of like a a point of contention, which I think has been referenced throughout the years. Spider-Man and and spicy food do not mix. So uh, there you go. One of the other things he did was he kind of brought Jonah back into the book. I mean, you know, Wolfman kind of in the end of his run kind of pushed Jonah and Peter's relationship apart and had Peter working for like the globe and meeting those cast of characters. And and that kind of stayed consistent through the Denny O'Neill run as he kind of ended a lot of those plot lines and didn't really take him anywhere. But throughout Stern's run, you know, Jonah is trying to kind of like poach Peter back to the bugle and, and, and get him working for him again. You could just see Stern itching to bring that character back into the forefront of, of all these comics. And there's a, I think a killer strike arc that Stern does that strongly involves Jonah and even gets Jonah a big spot on the cover where I don't even know if Spider-Man's on the cover. It's just Jonah tearing his suit off to like fight killer strike. And that's a weird issue, but okay. Yeah. But um, I mean, obviously Stern would go on to write some awesome Jonah stories as part of his run on amazing. So clearly, clearly wanted to use the character and with good reason. Jonah is always one of the best supporting characters out there. We also, uh, as we alluded to earlier, had some proto uh, Daniel Kingsley. Uh, We talked about his evolution, both just within the two issues that he showed up here and then obviously what would come later. Another character, villain that this was not a villain that Stern created, but in many respects, Stern had so many great stories with this villain. You might say he kind of co-created him was the Vulture. <laughs> and it's it's just interesting because, you know, obviously the Vulture, I mean, the Vulture appeared a fair amount during both, you know, the Dicko run and then the Ramita run. You know, there was always this kind of sense with a lot of creators, like how to use the Vulture because he's this older elderly villain. The, the, you know, even though like his, his power set's pretty cool, you know, in terms of his ability to fly and like his 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 technological prowess, you could always get the sense that that there were people the creators didn't know how to use him. Stern, on the other end of it, loved the Vulture. Like he always kind of saw the Vulture as like the ultimate Spider-Man villain. He's been in interviews where he's talked about this, where he kind of like you know sees the Vulture as being you know it's 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 that age you know age and experience versus youth and power. It's that kind of cunning experience versus youthful exuberance. Like it's it's those are the the polar ends that Stern really explores in his Vulture stories. He would go on to write. I mean, the, the, he appears once in a spectacular run, but but Stern would then go on to write uh, I, I, at least two awesome Vulture stories on Amazing that would really go on to define the character. So clearly, getting his his wings wet, his beak wet. <laughs> with, with uh, the Vulture uh, during this run. Yeah, I've always been curious about the integration of the, vul- the Vulture here. I, the, the cover of Spectacular 45 with the Vulture and Spider-Man in a coffin being fed into the furnace is the classic James Bond or 
what what have you, the slow death by fire or laser. You know, it's interesting because Stern would write forty issue forty three, and then Wolfman came on to do part one of a story in issue forty four, and then Stern finishes it up in 45 and and the vulture kind of is the cliffhanger in 44 and Stern takes over 45. And I've always suspected that like Wolfman hit a snag and they brought in Stern to fill in for 43. And then, you know, there was a gap and there's like, you know, Stern finish up 45 and he must've suggested to Wolfman, can you make the vulture a part of this? Cause it kind of comes out of nowhere and it seems like, you know, he, he wanted to kick both of his runs off with the vulture in some way because it's a fa- like you said, it's a favorite of his. And that was always my suspicion. I, I have nothing to go on there except for like reading how awkwardly and weird these few issues are handled editorially. So anyway, I, I always thought that issue 44 was Stern kind of like, be, you know, nudging Wolfman, like add in the vulture because I want to write him in 45. <laughs> in lieu of... The Juggernaut, we got Nitro, uh, Spidey, Spidey, nothing can stop the Nitro. No, uh, Nitro, of course, is, <laughs> is, I mean, Nitro is a pretty big power set villain here in terms of, I mean, this is a guy that, that basically killed Captain Marvel, a cosmic villain, a cosmic hero. His ability is that he could just blow himself up and then, uh, rematerialize. Like he's another, el- like older, elderly villain, but like his power set is so, off the charts it doesn't really ma- his age doesn't matter <laughs> like it's irrelevant and i guess what makes this i think a proto juggernaut story correct me if i'm wrong here dan is that you know obviously spider-man is not going to be able to just kind of overpower a guy who can keep blowing himself up uh with reckless abandon also like you know he can't keep doing this without losing innocent people with this guy blowing himself off in public spider-man has to basically trick him during one of his explosions, as he rematerializes, he he explodes in a, a factory that produces uh, nausea gas. So the nausea gas basically integrates as part of his um, genetic structure. So he's like permanently nauseous. <laughs> so it's kind of akin to Spider-Man throwing every trick of the book he could at Juggernaut and then just kind of outfoxing him in order to finally stop him uh, in, in the amazing run. And and you're selling this like lightly. This is nothing can stop the Juggernaut. Like, <laughs> it, it, it just, it, like rereading this, I, it is beat for beat. I mean, even down to like the innocent people that Spider-Man is worried about in, in fa- the face of this. I mean, yeah, it doesn't have John Romita Jr. drawing it, you know, but it, it is as similar to that story as you can get in a Spider-Man book other than like something can stop the juggernaut, which is actually quite different than nothing can stop the juggernaut. But uh, like rereading this, it's like very clear that this is the proto version of nothing can stop the juggernaut. And I think a really great tale on its own. Right. I mean, I guess, you know, again, the, the, the difference here between spectacular and amazing is, you know, obviously juggernaut, can be used in a book like Amazing. I mean, Juggernaut's a true A-list villain. I mean, you know, at that point, the X-Men were like the biggest thing in the world, even probably bigger than Spider-Man. So being able to use one of their villains in your book is a big deal, especially one of their A-list villains. Whereas Nitro, yeah, he, he's he got this huge power set and he took down Captain Marvel. But keep in mind, Captain Marvel at this point was kind of on his way out anyway. Uh, he's kind of a minor hero at that point before the character was reinvented a couple of times. Nitro is 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 a fairly minor villain, so you can kind of like tell the nothing can stop the juggernaut story, but it still seems to be lower stakes because the villain isn't as potent as juggernaut is or popular. <laughs> so I wanted to highlight another story, which is spectacular annual number three. Now, Stern did not write the A story in here. He wrote the B story in here, which I think was still a relatively new phenomenon in the pages of Spider-Man comics, right? Like we didn't get a lot of B stories up to this point, you know, as you know, if we did, it was like a white tiger story or, you know, like a look at Peter's apartments or big pinups of villains or an explanation of some device that Peter wears on his wrist, you know, a wrist device. What do they call those things? <laughs> a um, wristlet, uh, an amulet. Yeah. <laughs> But an annual is a perfect place for, you know, a backup B story. And this one I thought was really interesting because it's kind of like a look back uh, through Peter's life through photographs, I think, as written by Aunt May. 
And there's like clippings of newspaper articles of like things that Peter has done. And, you know, it's kind of done in that Ramita style. In fact, it might even been drawn by Ramita. I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, I should it's, look it's that Ramita up. Sr. is doing it. So what I thought was interesting about this is it is to me, it's proto kid who collects story because it's incorporating kind of the history of Spider-Man through photographs and newspaper articles. The newspaper articles are even like torn in off in the same way that they are in that book. Um, to me, this was kind of like establishing that kind of format. And it's the kind of story that we never really got about Spider-Man that I think Stern popularized with kid who collects, which is the like Spider-Man story where he's not fighting a villain. And it's kind of more about the good nature of Spider-Man as a hero that we'd see even people like Chip Zdarsky utilize to win an Oscar or not an Oscar an Eisner rather to me, this is notable because this is like a setup to probably one of the biggest genre changing stories for Spider-Man. Certainly that Will Eisner S kind of slice of life story, which was really, really cool. No, this is, it, it, this, I'm glad you pointed this one out. Cause I, I would have overlooked this Dan, and this, this was a really sweet read. So uh, then I would say the last Sternism, and this this would truly, I feel, be the the the, the hallmark of his run on Amazing, which was, uh, in terms of you know, we 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 are as a podcast, we we do an episode every season about rogues, and we love our villains here. Stern is very notable for the fact that he does not like to use traditional Spider-Man rogues in Spider-Man books outside of the Vulture. Vulture seems to be the exception. <laughs> a lot of the villains that Stern likes to use are either creations, you know, of himself, like the Hobgoblin, but also uh, basically other people's rogues. And like Spider-Man even makes note of it a lot of times. Like I think, you know, we have an appearance of uh, Cobra and Mr. Hyde in Spectacular 46, and they would actually both appear either together or separately, but they both appeared in Amazing as well. But Spider-Man even jokes with Cobra. Isn't he a daredevil guy? You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, you know, <laughs> like, like, like that, that, you know, there's a union and they can't cross cross lines when it comes to fighting these villains. <laughs> I mean, well, at least Cobra's got the color scheme. Exactly. Exactly. But, it, but, it, but beyond Cobra and Hyde, there was also other bad guys like uh, obviously Nitro. We talked about the smuggler and, and Gideon Mace who are both, Power Man slash Luke Cage villains. Uh, Smuggler appeared in uh, issue 49. Gideon Mace was in 52, that White Tiger uh, issue. Rather than using Doc Ock and Electro and Sandman and, and, and those guys, Stern really wanted to focus on other people's villains. He just basically, in interviews after the fact, was like, I found it was more interesting this way. It, it's, it's what he wanted as a writer. It scratched a niche for him. And it kind of created these new machinations and lineups of, of heroes and villains that I, I enjoyed as a reader. It's funny because, like, you know, despite the success of Stern, I think we can all kind of acknowledge his both his runs are considered very successful and beloved. There's not many other creators who've really kind of taken this kind of idea to heart, probably because it doesn't sell as well to not see the villains that you associate with Spider-Man, especially in a modern context. Although Dan Slott would do it here and there, right? I'm thinking about like, uh, like Scorpio and all that stuff. You don't really see a lot of this kind of mixing and matching going on in amazing Spider-Man anymore. It remains a Sternism, largely, I think. It's a sales thing. And, and I, I think it's just, it's hard. I think it's hard when, if you're a creator coming on this book, I mean, like, you know, do you really want to write, you, you either want to create your own villain. I think, I think that's always a thing. You want to create your own, but if you can't create your own, who, who do you, who are you going to use? Do you want to use someone that has been used over and over and you know you could tell a good story with like a Doc Ock or or a Sandman or are you gonna go to some C-less C-less villain from another villain because that's the other thing it's not like Cobra is a major Marvel rogue I mean like Daredevil at this point is fighting Kingpin so it's not like you know what I mean it's not like he's taking a big a big character from there so it's 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 just interesting it's an interesting approach but Stern is certainly one on I can count on maybe one hand of creators who made it work for sure yeah I mean maybe J JMS because he like created a lot of his own guys and he used Dr. Doom and and like Dormammu and Loki you know, I think he kind of was much more in the camp of invent your own guys versus use other people's stuff. So, yeah, 
awesome, Mark. This was a great discussion about Roger Stern. I can't wait to do a whole season of this. <laughs> There's more. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, everybody, if you enjoy the show and find it entertaining and valuable, please consider supporting us. Recommend Amazing Spider Talk to a friend. And if you're able, become a member on our Patreon. We can only bring you this content with the support of our Patreon members, and we owe the show's success to every single one of them. We are constantly making exclusive content for our members. This week, Patreon members will hear Dan and I review Amazing Spider-Man number 45, the start, sort of, of Sins Rising. (laughs) Yeah, and since new comic issues aren't coming out regularly right now, they got a weird schedule. For the next few weeks or months at least, why not take that $3.99 for a new issue, which is on the conservative end now, and put it towards a month's subscription to support the show and start receiving our Patreon content. And when comic stores open back up in full, you'll hear our Patreon-exclusive review podcast on every new issue of Amazing Spider-Man the same week that it comes out. And if you contribute $10 a month, you gain access to exclusive artwork from famous Spider-Man artists commissioned exclusively for our members. This season, we'll be mailing out a print of Nothing Can Stop the Juggernaut, drawn by official Marvel artist Max Fiamora in color and inks. Plus, every episode, we release a new episode-specific desktop background created for us by artist Nick Cagnetti for our patrons to enjoy. Yeah, and now that the season is over, our Patreon members will be voting on which net Nick Cagnetti print they'll get in the mail. We're going to print one of them out and send them out. So if you're a patron, please pay close attention to the page on Patreon so you can vote on which one has been your favorite. But we also know that this is a hard time for everybody, as it is for us too. So we appreciate anyone who supports the show just by listening and sharing. But if you do actually have the means and love the show, please join our Patreon to support the continued existence of our show. Just follow the link in the description and thank you again to all the members who already make this show possible. It's only through you that we can do all this stuff that we're doing. But alas, Dan, it's that time, time for all good things to come to an end. So we want to say thank you to you, the listeners and viewers, for tuning in to this episode of The Amazing Spider Talk. This episode was edited by Rick Coast with production support from Andy Myers. Our artwork comes handcrafted by artists Ron Friends, Sal Busema, Ray Sumzer, and Nick Cagnetti. Our theme songs were produced by Ryland Bojack and Spider Madge. Plus, our introduction animation and musical stinger comes from Josh Sutton from the YouTube show Panels to Pixels. Dan, of course, this was a ton of fun, but uh, what are we going to be doing next? What's, 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 what's happening to the show? I keep hearing you say this is the season finale. What does that mean? Well, actually, Mark, I don't know because you're right. This was the end of our shorter season four. Uh, We hope you guys enjoyed this shorter season and all the changes that came with it. I I happen to think the shorter season was like fun and breezier and didn't overstay its welcome. I I really enjoyed doing it. Well, the the last season took us about a year and a half to get through, Dan. So I I, I think anything didn't overstay that. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. But uh, let us know what you guys thought. You can always reach out on social media or in the Slack or email us at AmazingSpiderTalk at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your feedback about season four. As for what's next, everybody listens to the show knows that our breaks from seasons are never truly much of a stop. We'll be reviewing new issues of Amazing Spider-Man on Patreon, especially leading up to that issue 50, which is going to be a really interesting issue if, I, if my suspicions are correct. Mark, as always, we'll always find some other fun topics to cover and I'm sure some people to interview from the comics industry. So keep an eye on your feed for more exciting content in the meantime. Mark, what do you think? Breaks, we're going to be away for a couple months as we prep for season five. What, what do you got on your mind? Oh, well, I mean be great to maybe get some new creators on the show hint hint i mean you know there's a lot there's a lot we can maybe do dan i i i i find that to be exciting obviously amazing spider-man we're, we're, we're hitting a crescendo finally which we'll be talking about in a little bit for our patreons our patrons to enjoy but like there's a lot going on so you know we may not be doing this kind of format but we'll be around <laughs> yeah and then season five expect an announcement in the next couple months 
It's going to be a big season. We're excited to lay out all the topics we're going to be talking about there. I think it's a really special one for you and I, Mark, for reasons I think we've more than hinted at. So uh, we're really excited about that. If you're tuning in live, don't forget, as soon as the show ends, the conversation continues with our audience on YouTube. And if you missed out on Amazing Spider Talk Live this time, we'll be back soon on YouTube. So go there and subscribe and click on the bell to stay on top of all the new recordings that we'll be doing in the future. But as always, this will remain a podcast first and foremost. That will always remain consistent, just like how we end the show. That's with our motto. So Mark... Until the amazing Spider-Man 2 aliens return and reclaim their spot as Spidey's number one villain group, what's our credo? Well, Dan, it's with great podcasts, there must also come the amazing Spider-Talk. And Mark, this is where you rip your face off and reveal that you're an alien. And then you rip your alien face off and you're just Mark. (laughs) 